Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Kevin Lindsay. I am happy to join Tom Schultz as a host of the New Books in Systems and Cybernetics podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm here once again with Dr. Anthony Hodgson, author of Systems Thinking for a Turbulent World, A Search for New Perspectives, for our second part of our two-part conversation. Hello, Tony. Hello, Kevin. Good to talk to you again. You too. I want to thank you for taking the time to continue our discussion. In part one, you walked Tom and me through your background in systems, and you talked about some of the systems thinkers whose work has inspired you. You gave our listeners insight into why this book is so important right now also. We focused on the first half of the book, and you shared your thoughts on hyperturbulence, the need to re-perceive the future, and how we must rehabilitate the observer's role in systems. You also spent some time talking to us about anticipatory systems and your concept, Anticipatory Present Moment, or APM for short. I really appreciate how the back half of the book offers some practical and actionable methodologies derived from your vast systems and facilitation work. So I'd like to pick up the conversation by talking about the application of Anticipatory Present Moment. Does APM have a role in helping us cultivate decision integrity? and deal with what you call undecidable questions. Let's start there. Well, that's a very interesting question, Kevin, because the origin of the notion of the um, APM, Anticipatory Present Moment, was really driven by my um, need to try and understand what what was and what wasn't working. And so... um, From one perspective, the APM is um, a notion after the fact. So obviously, in my um, various activities during my career, some things have worked. And um, I've developed a, um, a practice of being able to help people deal with systemic issues, strategic issues, and futures issues. So clearly, for me personally, and for the kinds of um, learning that I'd had and, and, and the com- concepts I'd had to date, something was working. But none of it really hung together. It was fragmented in the same way that it is out there in the environment where there are um, you know, strategic thinking consultants, there are futurologists, there are um, systems thinkers. And you need you need all three, but but they don't have a a, a, a discipline that that integrates them. The, the the paradox which has exercised me for many years is how come systems thinkers are in a narrow silo? Uh, so um, from one perspective, the APM is um, a kind of um, post hoc explanation. Having said that, of course, part of the reason that I developed it and where it matters now is that in perhaps gaining um, 
something of a new perspective um, on this kind of work. It also offers some pragmatic um, indications as to what we might do better or differently. And so we're really on the cusp of that. And in a way, one aspect of publishing the book, I suppose, is a kind of invitation to those who kind of get it to join in answering that question you've asked me. I would love to know if uh, other people begin to pick it up um, uh, to help with their dealing with the, um, uh, you know, the, the hyper turbulence that um, what wasn't in my mind when I titled the book, but certainly has hit us with the COVID pandemic um, uh, to actually, you know, get some better clues as to what we could be doing when clearly our um, politicians and our health experts um, are very challenged by undecidable questions that the public clamour for them to take decisions about. And um, that's a tough situation to be in. Yeah. You know, there's a there's a quote from the book that I'm, I'm going to jump to uh, that just came to mind as you were talking. You say, the perverse consequence of this is that the more we assert this form of understanding of the world, the more we find ourselves living with the unintended consequences of our decisions. Turbulence morphs into hyperturbulence. And just as you're talking and you're, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking about the things that we're, you know, equipped with, the capacities that we have in terms of, of, of dealing with these kinds of things and what we're, um, able to kind of pull from, you know, somewhere within us to sort of guide some of this decision-making. Something else you write is adopting a more open dimensionality with more degrees of freedom places decision-making in a different context. So I'd love you to talk about this. I, I mean, it feels like you're introducing some sort of interesting, um, you know, ideas around ways of knowing uh, that could be guiding decision-making in a more effective way or a more ethical way. Yeah, that's... Um... That's really almost the heart and core of the um, thesis. Um, how can I approach this? Um, well, let, let me look, look at it this way. I'm, I'm having to, you've put me on the spot here. So this is, this is me thinking aloud, which I love to do, but isn't Great. necessarily always very good for the broadcast medium, which likes to hear voices talking all the time. So I'll try and do this without long pauses of silent reflection. Um, so if we've only got information from the past, um, that determines what we will do, what our decisions will be. And um, if I say, well, we need to take our decisions or form our decisions with information from the future, then that is uh, generally dismissed as um, uh fantasy um uh yes there are some schools of thought that acknowledge some degree of things like precognition and so on but generally um our, our cosmology if you like our, our everyday cosmology is that time is linear and one moment comes after the next and that's the only um, reality that we have now what now struck me in reflecting on um, Robert Rosen's idea of feed forward was that um, if we assume or hypothesize that 
space and time are not the sole determining conditions of our experience in the universe then there may be other domains as it were that we can access that give us more elbow room um and so um one of the things that we've looked at very much with our work with the three horizons particularly working with bill sharp is the idea of future consciousness that mm-hmm. if as well as linear time that's as it were driving what's going on right now there is also some kind of um, latent pattern which uh, is um, uh, sitting in a different space something continuum um, then um, that's another resource that we can call on now if that pattern is a very rich pattern and for me it always has been for for um, two good reasons two of my mentors i mean um john bennett for one but also david bohm who um expressed it as the universe is a qualitative infinity if the universe is a qualitative infinity and that's not just uh, abstract physics but it's a a descriptor of our experience as well then why are we so limited we 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 could access much more potentiality to bring into our decision making but it's a little bit like the old story of um Mullah Nasruddin um, looking for his keys under the lamppost and um, uh, a friend stops by and says hey what are you doing uh, Mullah says well I dropped my keys and I'm trying to find them Uh, oh okay well I'll help then where did you drop them and he said well I think it was over there in the bushes and so his friend said well good heavens man why why aren't you um, looking um, over there where you think you dropped it he said well I can't see there. There's more light over here under the lamppost. And and I and I think you you might say that that actually we 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 dropped our capacity to act better under the bushes, and we still continue to look for the data to do something more effective. Um, right. Uh, too too much in front of our noses. Yeah. You know, throughout the book, I get I get the sense of. Um, you know, your, your thinking that has developed over the years around, you know, what you call these, these uh, undecidable questions. And we'll talk a little bit more about that theme in a bit, but, you know, right now it just feels, you know, I think you had probably the Anthropocene and, and uh, the climate crisis so much in your mind as you're writing this. And as we said in part one, um, you probably hadn't uh, thought we'd be in a pandemic at the time, you know, a few months after writing the book. And having this conversation um but you know i get this sense from from you just around the kinds of things that 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 we can foresee that are predictable that you know we can use the data and 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 the patterns that we have been relying on in the past to sort of forecast the future and therefore the decision making is is linear and time lays out in front of us in a very linear way in the in, in the chapter I've been re- referring to, you you talk about the the di- difference between decisions that we can make in forecastable situations versus what needs to go into the decisions that 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 uh, are around these turbulent situations. It seems like there are so many of these turbulent situations. Can you highlight just a few of the the you know the differences that you think exist between you know when we're having to 
to decide the things that are in this like you know predictable forecastable kind of situation versus versus what we're really dealing with right now um yeah i i think i'll preface this by just acknowledging what a tremendous um hit i got when i came across um uh uh, I think it's a 1997 um, paper by Heinz von Forster on um, uh, psychiatry and second order cybernetics. Uh, that was sorry, that was the conference, not the title of the paper. Um, because it was there that I came across his notion of the undecidable question mm-hmm. and its relationship to ethics. So von Forster's um, viewpoint in in this um, paper is that um, morality is different from ethics. Morality is a set of rules and codes which um, rather like a computer program um, will determine um, what the right answer is in in some way. Um, But um, that has the limitation that it's, um, as he calls it, a copying machine. And so that's you know, in a sense, from his view, why we get bureaucracies that have um, no sensitivity to some of the deeper issues um, that faces in the ethical world. Whereas the undecidable question, it cannot be framed in a way that could be programmed, or I suppose, you know, given what's happened since 1997, can't be artificially intelligenced and this is where we're on the spot but that spot that we're on is the fundamental challenge to our ethical sense or um, from perhaps a language that von Forster didn't use but our conscience and so ethics has a much more um, individual specific taking responsibility and um von forster pointed out that the the as long as people try and deal with complex situations by just morality and bureaucracy um they're actually juggling away responsibility mm-hmm. it was somebody else's fault it was the system it was the way things are done around here. Um, uh, it, it's, you can't do that. It'll rock the boat and so on. Um, so how this is showing up, I mean, it, it, one of, one of the, the, I'm working with a local authority at the moment, a, a, a senior management group, and one of its members is the director of public health. And so here's this guy um, who's uh, bureaucratically given the accountability for keeping about 350,000 people healthy. And that's an impossible situation, given all the different interests and changes and the constant shift of uh, rules from Westminster. And yet he has to make decisions. So he's very much in, 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 in this predicament of, of um, having to take uh, decisions which are, in von Forster's term, undecidable. Now, it, it's interesting that um, the, his chief executive and himself and one or two others have actually read my book. <laughs> so uh, the, the, I think there's a, a sort of potential here for, for these 
rather abstruse ideas that appeared in the world of back, back, back corridors of cybernetics to begin to sort of come out into the open and uh, provided we were able to drop obsession with just the first order interpretation but move on to the importance of the role of personal consciousness in systems then we, th there may be um, um, you know some help we yeah. can gain from exploring that there's some hope i'm going to make sure that i get a few senior executives to read your book as well that's that's my commitment well good good luck and i'll i'll, <laughs> I'll look forward to the feedback sounds good so tony there's a lot of discussion about co-creation these days i'm i'm hearing it pretty much everywhere it's popping up in every context in chapter six you write to navigate this emerging world, we need a whole new level of collective intelligence that is able to co-create situations that correspond to the new state of affairs. And you go on to discuss pattern thinking. You brought up that, that a little bit and, uh, and, and participative repatterning, among other things. I'd like you to spend a few minutes talking about the limitations of the ways we engage collectively today. I mean, you probably see it in your work every day, which, which is, you know, the reason why you, you have written this book and you do the work that you do. Um, but in this hyper-turbulent environment specifically, you know, what are the, the limitations and what do you think we need to be doing differently? I think we can see it um, from one end, as it were, of the telescope uh, from the socio-political situations around the world where, um, you know, democracy is uh, being as we understand it, is being challenged and populism is, um, uh, is growing in, in, in different ways in the sense of um, when things get turbulent, people are very unsettled, uh, concerned, threatened. Um, and so they want comfort, safety, um, we all do uncertainty, and um, and so you get the 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 um, all the variations of the hero leader that you have to get the right person, usually a man at the top, and and they're going to fix everything, and of course, populist leaders play on that. Uh, it suits their game to put themselves um, as being the savior, and of course. Here, from a cybernetic point of view, the one thing we do understand about um, this sort of situation and leadership is that leaders simply do not have in their mind and experience the requisite variety that matches the variety of the conditions at hand. I'm obviously quoting um, Ashby's uh, law of requisite variety here. And um, one person who funded some of my early research in my 20s was none other than Stafford Beer. And Stafford, of course, was very keen on the, um, the, the uh, reform of the way governance operates to actually um, take into account the, the uh, requisite variety. Um, but we know that um, his um, work in Chile came to um, an abrupt end because of the hero power leadership of, of uh, some individual or faction um, needing to have 
what they think is control and you know within limited parameters they do have control but not in terms of the wider context so that always catches up um so so that leads to the idea of can there be a collective leadership brain as it were that is able to intelligently handle the requisite variety now another person who really helped me and was a both a, a client and a mentor was a a Dutchman, Ari de Hers, um, who um, achieved some prominence in the management world by his article Planning as Learning, but um, he was actually a, a group planner um, and, and chairman of subsidiary companies of, of Shell. And um, I remember talking about this kind of question with him many years ago, where he said, when I asked him why he'd taken interest in organizational learning and Peter Sanger's work and that whole sphere and systems thinking, he said, well, I'm constantly perplexed by the way that you can have um, a number of highly intelligent, experienced individuals come together into one room for a meeting and add up to one idiot. <laughs> and... Um, and so the idea of organizational learning was was you know part of all this background here of of how can we collaborate in a way where we 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 do better and, and we're more um cybernetically um in tune with the real situation now that's hard enough when things are stable but now we've got this world which is uh, rattling away um in 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 ways that are, are not in our usual experience things clashing together things popping out whole structures getting threatened like the whole structure of social contact being threatened by infectious virus and so on mm -hmm. and um and so even having a good meeting or having an od consultant facilitate a meeting or or let's use joint problem solving methods or whatever these um are, i mean obviously they're, they're helpful but that the, the, there's a whole new level of game to that, that we've got to uh, create and invent here if we're going to keep pace with the circumstances um and um and th then you get into the actual um sort of social rituals of communication which um are very dominated by hierarchy um and um i remember doing doing a project for a, a large corporation that shall be nameless with some senior management and some less senior management uh, around a, a strategic issue they had and i i kind of blew the mind of the of my client by announcing at the beginning of the session that we're going to use a method in which all voices will be heard unheard of. and of course <laughs> we're you know we're more used to everyone gets a post-it now but are they actually being heard um so what we've looked at with our um H3 uni methods, or th those have come out of a wide stable of background, including um, um, structured problem solving and so on, is how to get this uh, combination of a really good pattern of understanding that is being used, like having a good a good chessboard for playing chess, 
together with participation of of everyone can get involved it it isn't it isn't the professor at the front or the consultant at the front or the executive at the front controlling the process the, the process itself has a kind of integrity of its own and so if you follow if you follow the the rules of, of the, the guidance of the integrity of the method it will get you there whether you know and the, there is no expert when you're faced with open-ended turbulence and um, impossibility of gaining information sufficiently in a complex situation right that was a bit of, bit of a ramble there but i no, hope it's absolutely i want to pick up on something you said though you know what we're dealing with currently is um, leading to some interesting situations and maybe opportunities for co-creation that that uh, were not there before. Um, you know, uh, you and I are are obviously in very different parts of the world right now. You're you're in Scotland. I'm in California. Um, the technology is enabling us to have this conversation. The technology is also enabling. Um, interesting uh, conversations to continue and 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 maybe start up in in some new ways do you see potential for co-creation i mean we're kind of forced into this right now but are we seeing or are you seeing that that there are there are tools and there are ways that that everyone can have that voice in that meeting um maybe even better as a result of 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 the uh, more digital environment in which we find ourselves right now? Um, yeah, there are some almost, you can almost call them paradoxes in the current situation. Um, on, the, on the positive side, um, certainly in the work I'm doing, I wouldn't be talking with you if, if we didn't um, have the possibility of, of, of gathering in, in one um, place, um, in quotes, um, people from very different parts of the world. So, um, uh, in that sense, also the um, from the point of view of requisite variety, uh, that variety, incidentally, um, particularly in in design work, uh, stuff I've looked at with Professor Peter Jones, is qualitative variety. The qualitative variety in a group of people is much enriched by it not being constrained by who can who can travel to where for how long and at what cost um so on the dimension of of getting together um interesting people and minds um that's really uh, terrific um in terms of the downside of what can you do in a room in the same place uh, or even in the same room over days rather than just an hour or so um the the importance of of um people resonating interacting on different levels including even the physical um uh, the 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 ability to use visual space and movement um to um to enable processes to go on and just the sheer kind of uh, human camaraderie of 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 being together on the climb as it were mm -hmm. um all those get sidelined in in this medium and so from a, we've looked at it also from a facilitation point of view that that um 
it seems that that we need we need procedures that that that, that and structures that bring people together in a in a kind of equitable way as far as possible um, we need a technological medium which is not just um, what we're doing now talking to each other but it has a strong visual component and the emergence of um, uh, virtual whiteboards for example uh, is is very interesting here right um, but again um, a huge constraint is the mobile phone and the tablet I mean the, the work I do um, I, I only was only able to start doing some of the things I wanted to do because somebody sponsored me to buy um, a top of the range um, Microsoft Studio uh, with a massive touch sensitive screen and, and, and incredible detail. Um, I'm sure there are other um, computer companies that do the same. Um, yeah, so. Um, and then the other factor is is the software all the software pretty much is configured for um the ways we used to think in the past they're not configured for the ways we need to think in the future so that's another obsession of mine now i remember going to a meeting uh, with ibm many decades ago when they were first introducing the vga color screen I went to a demo in um, Scotland, I think it was at their I, IBM plant. And um, we had some contact with IBM because my director of research knew one of the vice presidents in, in the USA. And we tried to get them interested in uh, not, a, not a, a GUI, a graphical user interface, but a cognitive user interface. And, you know, to me, that's still open territory yeah. after about... 40 years so I don't think uh, what we're doing now will substitute for um, the fact that we live in bodies and um, are social yeah. beings and um, have much more complex forms of intelligence than just the head stuff that we put on a screen yeah I, but I on the other hand it's amazing what we can do um, I'm, I'm quite surprised and so under the circumstances, you know, we press on with that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. I think that there are, are tremendous opportunities and, and I'm grateful every day that we have these tools uh, that we can use to engage. But um, if I had my preference, I would, I would actually visit you in Scotland, Tony, and, and uh, we would work together in, in person. And, uh, you know, I, I also go out for the, you know, some of the out door scenes there that maybe you could you could show me around well, i'd be quite happy to do it with a trip to san francisco and visit the redwoods okay you know? very very good <laughs> um we'll we'll uh we'll make that happen my favorite chapter of the book is the penultimate chapter entitled transforming in the now you talk about being consciously present and and offer that we need to develop latent capacities beyond the analytical rational you espouse a new form of systemic consciousness. Can you talk about what this means and, and how we got there? I, I, you know, I know you've touched on this a, a little bit, but in this chapter, you know, you, you do kind of go into some of those, those concepts that I think we're starting to explore, you know, in, in our personal lives and, and, and maybe in, in some sort of more kind of 
esoteric gatherings, but I would love uh, to uh, hear from you on this. And, and you, you know, you did touch on, you know, some clients that are in what I would call the more mainstream. Um, and, and so I'd love for you to, you know, talk about how, how we bring this uh, to the organizations that, that, that need to do work and, and move the needle in, in a bunch of different ways. Well, I, I guess I, I could reflect on that in terms of my own life in in my 20s i was involved in um um what to call it spiritual esoteric work that um i found very central i was um fortunate to have a great mentor and um when i moved into um consulting um i I started off as a, a sort of learning design consultant and in fact one of my first clients was IBM um all that was buried um you know that that was not that was that was extremely private and yet some of the um things I was doing um uh some of the projects I did later on for example in in um, Hewlett-Packard um I was drawing on um ways of understanding and ways of of um tuning into things that I got away with because they got results, but I didn't talk about how I got them. And now, um, uh, since then, um, there's emerged in the mainstream more interest in things that often go under the heading of mindfulness and even yoga, although yoga in in the West is largely um, about a 5% slice of what it's really about yeah um um and now i'm i'm working um on these methods around a different language you know call it future consciousness as one piece of language um um, participative patterning is another um with a former director of research for hewlett-packard who is um an avid student of mindfulness and meditation. So, you know, it's like over four or five decades, it's gradually coming out. Now, there's been plenty of stuff in the corporate world around that, and there's been these movements where people have taken some human characteristic uh, of a deeper nature and commercialized it. And I've I've steered well away from that world. which is why H3Uni is a is a, a charitable a social enterprise charity. Um, it means we don't have any resources hardly, but we we you know we we're, we're what we we're building an ethos coherent community which offers um, safety, if you like, and encouragement to experiment with these um, deeper and um, more fulfilling ways of um, dealing with ourselves in the world. Um, so I put a couple of exercises in um, in the book just as an illustration of that. And they were to do with how we can begin to train our attention differently from the usual way to pick up signals, which referring to the earlier point around chapter five of um, dimensionality, do actually pick up on new signals and new information because you can tell from the way I talk about it for me that's real 
uh, I talk about it as a hypothesis in academic circles, but actually in, in, in the stream of actual life, it's how things yeah. work. It's how I'm creating H3Uni with yeah. my colleagues. We're, we're actually tapping into something that the future needs and doing what we can within our limited means to kind of demonstrate it. Yeah. That's fantastic. And, and you know, I, I said a little while ago that I, I love how the second half of the book really gives some practical methodologies and ideas and, and some real actionable um, concepts. And, you, you know, the exercise you're referring to right now, I really appreciate. I've, I've dog-eared that and I, I see it as something that I can use in, in a lot of my work and bring to the people that, that, that I work with. And personally as well. A bigger pardon? And personally yes, as well. Yes, the, the, definitely, definitely. The, 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 these, these methods sort of run through yeah. all aspects of, of life. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I want to quote something else. You say, the seeker for a new paradigm discovers that this paradigm is already inherently in his or her. Oh, we're getting a, getting a phone call, I think. Sorry, I killed it. Yeah. <laughs> I hope it was. It was probably your oh, your, okay. your your dinner date saying because uh, you, you're later over there in Scotland than I am. Um, so no, okay. I mean, I'll, just, I'll say this again. The seeker for a new paradigm discovers that this paradigm is already inherently in his or her being, but now has a language and roadmap for its development. This is from the last chapter of Systems Thinking for a Turbulent World. My last question isn't so much a question um, as a request for you to reflect on your final thoughts and, and words. Um, what came across to me in, in, in this statement and in this last chapter was really wise advice on how we need to be thinking of systems as, as natural systems thinking. We just have you know three or four moments left. Could you maybe just reflect on, on this last chapter and as you, as you bring this home? Well, what your question has triggered, which I hadn't got in mind, in fact, I haven't thought about for uh, ages, is um, in my 20s, when I was a research fellow with the John Bennett's Institute, one of the books that came into our sway, I've forgotten its title now, I think the author was Philip Coombs, was making the case that um, the role of education in our culture was to ensure that our intelligence is suppressed to about 10% of what it could be. Now, obviously, I came from the background of the culture saying, well, culture is a wonderful thing, and that's what makes us intelligent, you know. So this was a complete upside-down thought. Um, and on the other hand, if you look at the... Um, the history of ideas, which is something which has interested us for many years, um, the, the degree to which we're trapped in our belief systems, the amount of emotional and, and even physical and violent energy we invest in our belief systems, which do not which correspond very, very badly with the way things really are. Not because I'm saying that, not because I know how things really, really are, but I, I am aware of the way my belief systems are constantly challenged by real evidence. But we also, but have, we also this, have this, this psychological characteristic, which is quite a mystery, that suppresses our capability to reflect on that. And if 
if we hold our beliefs lightly and if we can meet with others who hold their beliefs lightly and we, we as it were let our intelligence flow which is why i think dialogue and and essentially being in the same room is is ultimately important we find that the kind of understandings we get come very easily without needing to do a phd in system dynamics at mit or um you know spend 30 years in the corporate world only only figuring out what's going on when we retire (laughs) um um so um I think there's a kind of paradox here that, that education for the third horizon has a very strong component of unlearning in it, as well as a strong component of learning. And how to work these two together without psychological and emotional turmoil is is um, yeah. a super challenge. But my, my reflection at the end of the book is really, a, a, hopefully, a message of encouragement that, that you know, I I, I, I'm, I have people who, who work with me who say, I can't possibly get to know what you've been able to study in your lives. There's no no way of catching up. And I say, nonsense. The whole point of of what we're trying to do is 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 to take the constraints off, so that becomes a natural um, organic growth of your own intelligence. It would be fantastic to hear from you. How much you've unlearned in your life compared to how much you've you've learned. I love that, uh, how you put that, yeah. Tony. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and of course, we punish mistakes, which is, you know, probably only needs doing in 10% of cases, 90% of cases. We just need to realize yeah. we've been through a learning yeah. experience. Exactly. Um, well, that's a great reflection. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. And Tony, thank you so, Janet, for very being very generous with your your time um, and and your thoughts with our you know listeners who get to benefit from you know part one and then you know this kind of concluding conversation uh, today. Um, Systems thinking for a turbulent world: a search for new perspectives is such an important book right now, and I encourage listeners to read it, share it, and bring it to their work wherever they can. So again, thank you very much, Tony. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. And thank you, listeners, for your interest and for tuning into this episode of New Books in Systems and Cybernetics. This is Kevin Lindsay, and I look forward to sharing more conversations with leading systems and cybernetics thinkers in the near future. So long.